Welcome everybody. It's good to have y'all. We're excited about this. We're, uh, we tried this once before and, uh, it didn't work too good. Um, but we learned some things from it. And so this is going to work great. I'll just tell you, um, and what we did before was we thought, oh, yeah, we get a bunch of families. They'll come here. And it'll just be awesome. And that was our plan, was just that it would be awesome. And so this time we actually have a plan. And uh, so I think it will be a, a great time together. The, to be honest, the way, the, the way we want to emphasize family this weekend is there's not going to be a ton of structure uh, as far as the programming side of things. We're not just going to bounce you from place to place and... Uh, session to session, we are going to give you a, a lot of opportunity as a family to meet together. So there will be three main sessions tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night. And uh, after each one of those sessions, we'll, we'll kind of give you some direction to go into family devotions, uh, kind of just a family discussion time, even if you've got little ones. Some of you, I would assume a lot of the families here, in fact, I know quite a few of the families here have vibrant family devotion family discussion, family worship, family prayer, something like that, where you meet together as a family, you do that. Um, some of you, maybe uh, you don't, and, and you need to. You need to. Dad, you need to set the, the pace for that. Mom, you need to be cooperative. Uh, you don't need to poke and prod Dad and, and say, see, 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 I've been telling you this, but, but we need to work together to provide and cultivate uh, where our homes are, are the the root and source of worship for our families, not the church. The church should not be the root source of worship for your family. The home should be that. So we're going to give you opportunity for that. We're going to, after each session, we're going to kind of give you an alley-oop. Um, if you're not a sports person, that means we're going to make it easy for you to transition into the, the worship time as a family. Don't freak out. Family worship, uh, we have tried at times in my home for dad to lead worship in song and usually it ends with about the same level of giggling that it that statement just was received with and so we you know when we hear family worship you think oh somebody's got to lead off and we got to sing kumbaya or do something in rounds or hand motions and we just you know and dad gets really sweaty in the armpits when you know when you think of things like that that's not what we're talking about uh because Am I right? In Scripture, worship is the reading of Scripture. It is the quoting of Scripture. It is the meditation and memorization of Scripture. It is the hearing of Scripture. It is the preaching of Scripture. It is the explanation or exposition of Scripture. It is exegesis of Scripture, which is the study of Scripture so that it can be understood for what it was intended to be understood. And so when we talk about worship, we should be talking about those things as the hub of worship, not liturgy or music or uh, corporate events, we're talking about the word of God and the power that it brings, the insight that it brings, the counsel that it brings, the uh, understanding of who God is that we receive from the scripture. That should be at the center of worship. So when, you know, throughout scripture, when you see uh, the, the nation of Israel or the early church come together, primarily what you've got is the singing of songs is, is part of that and prayer is part of that. But there's always a a very clear reading of scripture and usually there's some explanation given or, or teaching that's given. And dad, if you're, if you're nervous because you're not a, a, a gifted teacher or communicator, let me tell you something. If you'll be faithful to read the scripture to your students or to your children, 
your kids, and I don't care if they're five or 15, if you'll be faithful to read the scripture, just read it. We're going to read the Bible together as a family. It will be revolutionary to the, the centrality of the gospel in your home. So you don't have to freak out and, and, and have a freak out moment when you think, well, I'm not gifted as a pastor or teacher or, or communicator. Just read the scripture. And, and I, would, I would say, I would encourage you with this, you'd be amazed at how, uh, how, how much the Lord will probably then open your mouth to then be able to teach the scripture to your kids because God designed the family to function this way. And a lot of us are waiting on God to do something that he built into the system that he put together in the first place. Well, I need to learn how to be a teacher or I'm not a teacher or I don't know how to teach or I don't know how to communicate. God wired and built, he hardwired the family that, that we would do this, that dad would do this. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, if you think back to Deuteronomy 6, the beginning of the chapter, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he's, he's talking primarily to dads and he says that basically we need to read the scripture when we're sitting down, when we're rising up, when we're going to bed, when we're eating together, when we're walking in the street or in our context, driving down the road. That may mean putting your smartphone aside and ignoring Facebook and text and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else consumes your time, email from work. And then we just kind of set that aside so that when we're together as a family, as rare as that seems to be in our culture, that we're going down the road reflecting on scripture or singing songs of praise or we're, we're eating together as a family. We're, we're utilizing the time that God gives us in those situations to talk about scripture. So going all the way back to, to Deuteronomy, God's plan for the family early on and really going back to Genesis 2 when God talks to Adam and he's saying, here's the word of the Lord. Now go instruct your family with this. And that's where Adam failed, wasn't it? He didn't instruct well the word of God, the word of the Lord. And so God intends for us as families to worship together. And that worship is to be built around the, the centrality of scripture. Okay. So second thing, and, and then we're going to actually get into a, a passage of scripture that will kind of be our, 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 passage that we'll, we'll settle in for all three sessions. But the second thing is, and this, I heard a sermon today that really convicted me and kind of in, just in, engaged some emotion and some things in my own thoughts in, in, in terms of just personal conviction. And the pastor was talking about how the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer will be, ev- or, or, or the power of the Holy Spirit, let me think how he worded it, the power of the Holy Spirit will be evident in our lives by how much we kind of uh, humble ourselves and prefer those around us and serve others. And he, and he used some awesome biblical examples. One was John the Baptist, where we're told that, you know, the Holy Spirit came on John. John preached with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then what did John do? Pointed to Christ. Pointed to Christ. You know, he was, he was here to, to serve Christ. In fact, compared himself to a slave of Jesus when he talked about the not being uh, worthy to unlatch his sandals. Remember that? Which was really prophetic, not prophetic, but was then the thrust of Paul's teaching in Romans 6 when he talks about us being slaves of Christ. What, what uh, John was doing was he was saying, I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm a slave to Jesus. And if we're enslaved to Christ and we're enslaved to righteousness, then we'll see our identity as the identity of a slave. 
And then the lateral relationships, the, the horizontal relationships that God's given us, specifically in the family, will be relationships where we desire to serve the people around us, but we need to, we need to make sure and distinguish. We serve them for the sake of their sanctification, our wives, our husbands, our children. We serve them. We prefer them. We, we submit our desires to their needs for their sanctification, which is what? It's their, their conformity to the image of Christ. So my goal then is for those people in my family, my wife and my situation, my wife and, and my children, to serve them in such a way that they see Christ exalted and they want to worship him more because of the way I serve them. So, so that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in a believer's life, that we're going to serve. And we see it throughout the scripture, the Holy Spirit. When, when you see kings anointed, when you see prophets have the Holy Spirit come on, you know, come on these prophets, then they become men who would serve and women who would serve. You know, I even think about, uh, I remember Samson when his hair was cut. You remember what had happened was Samson had become very self-serving. Remember that story? This is one, this is a great one as a family to sit down and unpack. I think well, as, we, as we work through the weekend and we talk about family worship, one of the things I would encourage a lot of us to do is to just go unpack all of the classic, I hate to use that word, but y'all know what I mean, the classic stories, you know, the lion's den, the, the ark, uh, the fish. And, uh, and one of the things that is so evident when you, when you start to unpack those stories is the way that when, when the spirit of God would come on somebody. So when he, when he came on Samson at the end of his life, Samson was sacrificial in being willing to die for the deliverance of the people. So what is Samson? He's a typology. He's a picture of Jesus, isn't he? In that, in that scene. But, but what happened prior to that was that the Holy Spirit departed from Samson. Why did the Holy Spirit depart from Samson? Well, because Samson became self-serving. It's real hard to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life, Dad, when you're serving yourself in the home. Mom, it's real hard to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on, on your parenting techniques when your parenting techniques serve your convenience or, or your preferences. So when we're serving those that God's entrusted with us in those closest relationships, then the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes on that and, there's, and God blesses it. God, God will bless that. He'll bless that. And, and I mean, you could, we can transition that into any other relationships in life. I mean, at work, at church, in the community, that is going to be the case when we serve the Holy, the, the power of the Holy Spirit then is going to engage people that as we serve them. So turn to Ephesians chapter five. So with those kind of uh, those two ideas or thoughts or points as an introduction to the weekend, the centrality of the scripture and everything that we do as a family, and then the need that we be submitted to the Holy Spirit so that God has that, that blessing and that anointing on our families, that's what's going to make a difference. Before we start, and it's important that we understand that before we start to try to unpack scripture. and Because and, here's, here's the dangers that we'll take this weekend and we'll say, well, I want some how-tos. Give me some lists. Give me some bullet points. Here's eight things that will make you a better daddy. Here's eight things that will make you a better husband. Here's nine things that will make you a worse mom. You know, it's, and we want to give me just... Give it to me straight. But we need to understand that the word of God breathes the wisdom of God and the counsel of God. The Holy Spirit then engages our hearts and minds and lives with the breath of God through the scripture. And so we need those two powers that work in our lives. So we'll turn to Ephesians 5. And this is, 
arguably the most prevalent, prominent, go-to passage of Scripture when we talk about marriage, when we think about marriage, and, but also when we think about family. So I'm going to just read this passage, look at a couple of thoughts tonight from the passage, and then we'll really unpack it more in detail tomorrow morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Remember, Christ was led of the Spirit. So, again, just you're going to see this theme throughout Scripture. When someone is serving, there's always going to be the leading and anointing of the Holy Spirit in that serving. So, uh, you think Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit in, in the womb of Mary. Uh, he, was, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There seems to be an anointing of the Holy Spirit even in his, as he grows. And then he's about the work of the Father in the temple. Uh, he is then, uh, we see at the baptism of Christ in, in Mark 1, in, in, in the Gospels when, when Christ is baptized, uh, we see the favor of the Father represented in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You remember that? The Holy Spirit descended something like a dove, rested on Christ. So we see the favor of God in the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the, on the ministry of Christ. He is then led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by the enemy. You remember that? And then ultimately, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that he's, the resurrection occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the power through which Christ lived as a man. This is real encouraging for us as fathers and, and mothers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters that we live our lives under the same anointing and same power that Christ did as a human because though he was God, he thought it not equality. I mean, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he didn't grasp that. He didn't grasp that. So he humbled himself and became a man and he did what he did as a man in his full humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we receive. 26, okay. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that's the idea of sanctifying is that Christ is serving the church so that the church would then be like Christ. And, and we'll get, again, we'll unpack that um, as we go along. Verse 27, so that he might present the church uh, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. After Paul's here in and, and say, I have to say this, uh, a lot of, you know, Steve Coleman, the big kahuna, his dad is here. Big D is here and big D is 90 years old now and, and went swimming in the Creek today. He always does when he comes here. And, uh, he's one of my favorite people on the planet. We were, me and big D were working one time and we were, take, he was, he was real young then. He was like 81 and, uh, we were on top of some scaffolding, taking, taking a metal building apart. And I said, and, and I said, Big D, and he's, he's an 80-year-old man on top of a ladder. Okay, here's what we had built. We had a box truck. You know what a box truck is? So like a, 
I don't know, it's probably 15, 12 feet to the top of that box truck. Then we built a rick of scaffolding on top of that box truck out of two-by material. And then we went on top of that and had a stepladder on it. And Big D's on top of that. And he was at least late 70s, I know. And, and I said, Big D, were you a real obedient kid? And he said, huh? And I said, I'm just thinking, it says that if you honor your parents, you'll live long. And there's no real good reason why you're still alive other than the promise of God on your life. I mean, <laughs> I don't understand it. You're the, you know. And so what we're talking about when we, see, when we look through this passage of Scripture, a lot of it is principle. Okay, this is not God saying, if you obey your parents all the time, you're guaranteed to grow old. We all know godly people who have died at young ages. But, but what you've got is, is proverb-esque type wisdom being spoken here into the structure of the family. For the most part, if the kids honor the parents, things work. It, it, it goes well for you, young people. You honor your parents, it goes well for you. I know that at age 16, it's easy to think that you know most everything that at this point, the, the knowledge that the world contains, you know it. And I know that you have the tendency to want to negotiate with your parents. Like, well, it seems to me you shouldn't have spoken to me that way. Well, it seems to me I pay your taxes and your mortgage. And you're not as smart as you think, right? Honor your parents. I mean, there's not a lot of rules laid out for kids in Scripture that are kid-specific. Now, there's, I mean, there's anything that applies to me as a believer, you as a believer, applies to a 12-year-old believer in terms of pursuing Christ and guarding our hearts, being obedient to Scripture and Loving the word of God. But kids specific, we're told to honor our parents, young people. Told to honor our parents. And it'll go well for you if you do that. It'll go well for you. God will honor that. And he'll honor it in your life. And so what we see in this text, this passage of scripture, I, I, wanted, I, I thought about just a, a handful of things, six, six things. And I said I wasn't going to do bullet points, and I'm not. It's not this is not a, a checklist of things. This is... Looking at biblical marriage, these are things that we know scripturally biblical marriage should reflect and, and point to from scripture, okay? So, so marriage is for, colon, marriage exists for, colon, and here, here's some thoughts. And I would say all of these would be encompassed in the, in the biblical teaching that marriage exists to reflect the glory of God. Marriage and family exist to reflect the, the glory of God. Number one, marriage is for... Love and companionship. Love and companionship. Remember when God created Adam and he says to, uh, to Adam, um, it's not good for you to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. You remember that? Not good for you to be alone. I, uh, some, maybe some of you young people, you know what it's like if mom goes out of town for a few days and dad is left in charge of the house. And you can say, yeah, it's not good for man to be in charge of the house. It's not good for man to be alone. I used to love it when my mom would go out of town because my dad would, would feed us things like Oreos and uh, Doritos, and that would be supper, you know? And I thought, this is great, you know? And breakfast would be sugar cereal. He thought, you know, I'm just, whatever makes him happy. And, uh, and, but usually there would be the, you know, the last minute clean the house deal, you know, right before mom got home, and that was always a nightmare. But, but God says to Adam, in Genesis, it's not good for you to be alone. So companionship is, and, and we'll see as we look deeper into this biblical picture of marriage and family, that companionship is just the first step towards reflecting the glory of God. Companionship is a biblical reason for marriage. 
Companionship. There's nothing wrong with this. I mean, we can spiritualize things all day long. Well, marriage exists for, and then we can begin to go into deep biblical doctrine. But practically, it exists for companionship. Which means you, as husband and wife, should be companions. BFFs. Legitimately, the only BFF should be husband and wife. No two teenage girls can claim BFF. God already staked that in marriage. Uh, old people, BFF stands for best friends forever. Okay? <laughs> best friends forever. That's a marriage clause. Companionship. I remember, my, I remember when I was in sixth grade, my nanny died. It's the first death I really... My, I had a great-grandfather that died when I was in second or third grade. And, uh, but the first really just shook me death. My nanny died. She was only 55 and she, uh, had cancer and passed away and I was devastated, which, you know, she was 55 and I was 12. So, you know, I thought she was extremely old. I thought she died of old age. Uh, and I found out later, you know, and that's not really how it worked. And she, it was a tragic, just a tragic thing. And we were so devastated. And as a kid, you know, learning to process death, it's so hard. I remember, uh, my granddad, Remarried five months later. So she died Christmas day. The, the Christmas night, I think it was after midnight. So it was December 26th. My granddad remarried in May. And we were, we were upset. How can he do this? It's like he's cheating on nanny, you know? And I remember my dad bringing us all together as a family and sitting us down. And he read, he read from Genesis 2 where God said, it's not good for man to be alone. God wired, hardwired into us a desire for companionship. So there's nothing wrong. In fact, everything is right biblically with desiring that our marriage reflect companionship and that should spill into our parenting. Our kids should feel like they are not our buddies, but that we love them relationally, not just biologically. So there's a fine line there. I I don't want to just extend biological love, which says, well, I will provide food and shelter and clothing and education for you. But, and they're also not, my kids are not my buddies. They're not my buddies. I have buddies. Spencer, my buddy. I got friends, you know, as grownups, Muggs, my buddy. I I got, I got my buddies. I got Eric Potter's my buddy. Oh, a buddy of mine. I'll say that. I don't use that for my kids. I don't refer to my son as a buddy of mine a good friend of mine, a companion of mine. So it's not companionship in the sense that they become our peer group, but the way companionship spills over into our kids. Listen, the companionship, the love and affection that we have from our kids should be an overflow of the love and affection that we have in the marriage relationship. It should not be a separate entity because what happens is too often in marriage, the marriage, the marriage relationship rather is kind of left for the companionship provided by the children. So then mom and dad each have their relationships to the kids, but they've ceased to be companions. And that companionship should pour over into the relationship that we have with our kids. So companionship is not just one of the reasons God's given us marriage in terms of husband and wife, but it's, it's at the center of family, the center of family. Number two, marriage exists for raising godly children. The last 
right there at the end, verse 4. I don't think, I may not have read verse 4. I meant to go through 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Exist for raising godly children. One of the things I love about parenting is that it helps me understand the selfless nature of a self-satisfied God, which is, that's a dichotomy. I mean, in the, in the human existence, that's a contradiction. For me to be completely selfless, to be willing to empty myself, but to be completely committed to my own glory. There, there's a dichotomy there that I can't completely wrap my brain around. And I have to explain this to young people often and, and, uh, and try to help them understand this because they'll say, if God is jealous, I don't get that. It, it seems like that's selfish. And, but we know that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate act of selflessness is the cross. So how, does, you know, how do we connect these things? And, and it's simply, I think the easiest way to explain it to young people, and it's good for us to remember this, is that God is so satisfied within himself, but he's so loving that he creates us to bring us into that glory so that we can experience what God has. But in order for us to experience what God has, he must be jealous for us. He has to be. Can't create us and not be jealous for us. And that's good jealousy. That's the jealousy that says, I'm not okay with my wife having coffee with another man just to be friends and companions. Well, she's just, they're just, they're just friends. They're coworkers. They're just going to go after work for coffee. Not my wife is not going to. No, we don't. That's not one of our arrangements in the society that we live in called biblical Christianity. That is a guarded relationship. It's a guarded relationship. So, so when we're talking about how God is jealous, that's, that's the picture of jealousy. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guard my relationship to you as much to protect you as anything. I mean, for, first and foremost, for God's glory, but then for our pleasure and protection and sanctification. So, so healthy jealousy says, well, my wife may want to go have coffee legitimately because there's some work things that need to be discussed. And I'm saying, I want to protect you from the potential of Satan's snares in that situation. It's not just I'm jealous and no, I don't want you looking at it. It's yes, I'm, I'm jealous for our love, but I'm also jealous in the sense that I want to protect you and guard you from your own sin. That's, that's the way God's jealousy functions in the relationship. Was in, so, I, so I was in a, in a home, very, I have the opportunity to travel and spend a lot of time on the road, spend a lot of time preaching on the road. And I was actually in a really nice home recently. And, uh, one of the nicest homes I've ever been in. And I was, it was a little awkward because I I was asked to take my shoes off before I walked in. Now, I've experienced that in Asia and Africa and places like that, but this was in a major American city. And I thought, this is awkward because in my house, we sweep every couple days and that takes care of, you know, dirty shoes. (laughs) It's like, just wear them, we'll sweep, you know. Anyway, so I I walked in in my socked feet. I felt like a ninja or something, you know. (laughs) You kind of walked in there and I, I thought, well, I sit down, what do I do here? You know, do we sit in the floor, Indian style? I mean, what, what's going on here, you know? So, uh, so you know, I'm, I'm looking at this, this home, I mean, this home, I can't, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, oh, the home theater system was like that. 
had chairs and surround. I mean, it's just amazing. And I said, so I asked the pastor that I was with, and, and it's funny because the pastor, this was the family that had said, yeah, we'll provide lunch after the, it was, it was actually a family conference I was speaking at. And so on Sunday, the conference came to a close Sunday morning in this church. So we would have lunch here. And there were all the leaders from the conference were there. I guess it was the biggest house in the, so I lean over to the one pastor and said, Hey man, how many kids these guys got? And he said, I ain't got no kids. I said, how old are they? He said, I think they were late thirties. And I said, now are they, uh, you know, not able to have kids. So maybe uh, you know, to adopt or I was being somewhat nosy, I guess now in retrospect, <laughs> but I was just fairly intrigued because when me and little was just me and little, we lived in a one room shack for a while. We lived in a barn for about a year. You know, it was, you don't need a lot when you got to change nasty diapers, you know? And I said, what? I said, so what? What's the deal, man? Is it? He said, they just don't want no kids. They make a lot of money. They enjoy their life. They get a house on the lake and they, they travel a lot. They just don't want kids. And I thought, huh. Imagine if the Trinitarian God had said, I don't want kids. We're good. I mean, it's me and the Son and the Holy Spirit and Eternal life is good. There is no reason to disrupt this with a bunch of pagan humans. But God in his mercy creates us and then tells us to reflect that in the way that, and, and the way that we replicate that is in the rearing of godly children. We bring them into the companionship of biblical marriage. We bring our kids into the relationship that God has established. We bring our grandkids into, and it becomes patriarchal generations then that experience the companionship of a man and a woman who are reflecting the Trinitarian existence of God within the relationship God's given them. So then once in that position, we're to raise godly kids. We raise godly kids. Marriage exists to raise godly kids. It's, I, I need to share this, and this is going to add. Okay, this is going to add. I, I'm, I've got my timer going here. I know we got little ones down there, and I've got, but I got to share this real quick. This is not in my notes, but I had a conversation with uh, one of our interns about a situation in his home church that he found out about this week, where there is a same-sex couple, two ladies that have been in a civil union for 15 years. Okay, now. They have raised a child together, and that child is now 10 years old. So, so you can see there's a, a, a legitimate... Now, understand, when I say legitimate, biblically, marriage is between a man and a woman, okay? It's okay, so... But when I say legitimate, if you're a 10-year-old kid and all you've ever known is this, there's a legitimate family unit in this kid's eyes. That's the confusion of it all, you understand? So here's a situation where they're now in this church and they want to join the church and be baptized because they both, both of these ladies say as children, they made professions of faith and they believe their child has now made a profession of faith. And the pastor's going, I got to hit this. How do I deal with this? I said, head on, head on. You have to deal with this head on. So how, how do we deal with it? Marriage exists for raising godly children which means we instruct them in the nurture and instruction and discipline of the Lord, according to Ephesians 6, 4. We've got to give them the whole counsel of God. Have to give them the whole counsel of God. Okay, that didn't take but a minute and a half.
Number three, marriage is for reflection. He says it is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. So marriage gives us a very practical reflection and an ability to reflect on the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage exists to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. I would also say with that, an understanding of the relationship between Christ and the church. So marriage exists to to amplify the gospel. To amplify the gospel. Number four, marriage exists for holiness. Holiness. What is holiness? Well, uh, you know, I think in, in the context of Ephesians 5, we're talking about sanctification, that as, as we reflect the holiness and nature and character of Jesus Christ, that our marriage should enable us to reflect it more and more. As the older we get together, the longer we're together, the more we should reflect that. Um, so many marriages do something like this as the years go. When the reality is in our, in, in, in our immaturity, we look back, and I know for me and little, we look back where we were spiritually, our marriage has done this. Because as you grow in your relationship with Christ, I hope that that's what happens. I pray that 10 and 15 and 30 and 40 years from now, we're still doing this and we're going, gosh, at 20 years, which is about where we are now, 20 years, we were still really out here, you know. I thought we were here, but. And so it's not, it's, it's that the, the teaching of Romans 11, all oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his truths, how inscrutable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God is such that on day one of a marriage, we're drinking from what feels like the depth of God's grace and wisdom and knowledge. And you find out 50 years later, you're drinking from far deeper depths, the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's what marriage should look like. It's constantly taking us deeper into our understanding of who God is. In that sense, it's for holiness and sanctification. Number five, marriage is for removing shame and growing faith. So he says, he he mentions there in uh, verse 32, this mystery is profound. The mystery is this, I think, that Paul's talking about here. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 2, when uh, it says it's not good for man to be alone, and, and, and he brings the two together, and then it says that they were, they, I mean, they were naked and unashamed, and he says a man should leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. So those are the two, the two things he says after he, that union. Naked and unashamed, leave mother and father, hold fast to the wife. So then after the fall... After the fall, what's the first thing Adam and Eve notice? That, they're, yeah, that they don't have clothes. So shame comes in. And the shame reveals the nakedness. What, what is the root of the shame is the sin in each individual's heart. So my shame comes from my own sin. But then I, I, compa- I, or I project that, rather, onto my spouse. So I begin to not trust my spouse because of what's in my own heart. So I project on that person the ugliest side of what's in my own heart, which is the opposite of what we started off with. When, when under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to serve that person for the last point, their sanctification and holiness. But in my sin, I'm going to project on them what I don't trust about myself, what I don't trust about the things I least like about me. I'm going to find that in my spouse. I'm going to, my, I, 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 
We'll go mining that out of our spouse to point it out. The things that, that we don't like are always going to turn into the things that are true in our own lives. So he says, there's a mystery. And the mystery is that that is eliminated through the gospel and through gospel-centered marriage. How is that eliminated? Well, because rather than projecting my own sin onto my spouse and then holding them in contempt and not trusting them, I will instead project grace onto my spouse. Grace, 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 so that I can, so, so that I, I can see the gospel at work, as Paul would say in Romans 5, where sin increase, increased, grace increased and abounded all the more. So no matter what I feel in terms of my own sin and a lack of trust towards my spouse because of my own shame, I'm going to project grace, the grace of the gospel, onto my spouse. In that sense, there's a mystery that is profound. And the mystery says this, how do you love somebody in such a way that you pour grace on them and prefer them and serve them more than you love and serve yourself? That's the mystery of marriage in the gospel or the gospel in marriage. So number five, it's for removing shame and growing faith. How do we know this is true? Because after the fall, a man is still to leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. That didn't change, did it? Sin came into the world, that didn't change. So somehow sin came into the world, naked and unashamed needs to not change, right? Somehow the lack of, the removing of shame in the relationship needs to still be there. That's the mystery that comes through the gospel. So number six, this is the last one. Marriage is for reflection and uh, it reflects and displays a covenantal love of Christ. So it's not just the relationship between Christ and the church. And this, I hesitated to put this one in there because this one seems a lot like um, number three. We talked about the reflection of the relationship of Christ and the church, but we're talking about the covenantal love. Okay. And the reason I added it, I'll give you a couple of, couple of uh, thoughts on that. Marriage is to reflect the covenantal love of Christ. The covenantal love of Christ is that God in your marriage and family, God is the primary agent at work in the covenant between husband and wife. Because all marriage is rooted in God. Even pagan, carnal marriage between two atheists, it's rooted in God. Because marriage doesn't exist if God doesn't create man and female and bring them together in the first marriage. So all marriage rests on and is rooted in God. Okay? So, so it, it shows us the covenantal love of Christ because it is the covenant of marriage that God ordained and authored and created and blessed that is the primary cause in our covenant as husband and wife. Which holds up and supports but doesn't eliminate the secondary cause, which is my covenant to my wife and her covenant to me. I have a responsibility to that covenant. So the covenant of God holds up the covenant that husband and wife make. It's the primary cause. But the secondary cause is there at work. And that is what we're held responsible to. I'm not held responsible for God's actions. God doesn't need me to hold him responsible for anything. But I'm held responsible for what I do with my covenant to my wife and my family. So marriage that doesn't do this does not only not reflect the gospel, but it perverts it. Marriage that falls short in any of those six things 
Not only does it not reflect the glory of God, but it perverts and distorts the glory of God. Now, I think I wrote out about 15 things and, and condensed them. We could, I know that we could go to other things that marriage does and reflects. But in those six, we can, we can condense to those six and say that if we're not reflecting that in our homes, then we are perverting and distorting the family picture that God would have us to, to, to display. Namely, to reflect his glory. And, and so that begins in the companionship of husband and wife, the covenantal love of husband and wife, and then that extends down to the kids. So under God's covenant, we are bound, as primary cause, and under our covenant, as husband and wife, we are bound. And by God's provision, we see in passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 7, God brings our children under the blessing of that covenant. That's why it's so critical that our covenant marriage and union reflect the person and work of Jesus because our kids are guarded under that covenant. They're guarded under that covenant. So marriage that bears, adopts, or raises children is an opportunity to reflect the Trinitarian grace and love extended to us in worship. I think that... One of, the, one of the things that's so amazing about the Trinitarian existence of God is the way Christ submits to the Father and then how the Holy Spirit always displays the glory of Christ. And so you've got complementarian submission among equals. God the Father, God the Son, who is equal to the Father, yet submits to the Father, equal to but submits to for the glory of the triune God. So our marriages are to be reflective of God's glory in the way that we submit to and serve one another. Wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving sacrificially so that we reflect the glory of God. Not our own glory. It's not, it's not wives need to submit and husbands need to serve and lead by serving so that we look good and, and the church looks good and Christianity looks good. No, it's to display the glory of God and to point to the gospel in marriage. So tonight, we, we believe that one of, the, one of the most critical elements of a marriage that reflects the glory of God is one of biblical headship. And in that passage, and we're going to unpack we're going to really uh, unpack the, the side of dads and parenting tomorrow morning. But in that passage, husbands and fathers are called to a high level of responsibility and, and accountability. And so as we go into family devotion and worship time tonight, there's going to be a lot of free time tonight. And, uh, and you guys are going to be able to just enjoy family tonight and tomorrow. We have a lot of free time scheduled in. Uh, but, but tonight, we're going to go from here. And we want you to go into, at some point when we break up, a time of family worship together. And I would like to, if, if I could, steer and direct you to read as a family Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Here's why. Tomorrow night we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 looking at the godliness of Moses' earthly biological parents. 
and the investment that they made in his life and a picture of who Moses was as a child to the picture that he gives us of who Christ is. So what I'd like to do is tonight read Exodus 1. Tomorrow morning, we'll give you some instruction on what tomorrow morning's family time is going to look like. But read Exodus 1. And here, okay, here comes the alley-oop. If you're not a sports person, here comes the, the setup. Okay? This is, uh, this is the setup. Talk about in Exodus 1 tonight as a family... Talk about the gray, I mean, the weight, the gravity of the fact that there is a king who wants to kill all the little boys. Wants to kill all the little boys. What that does is, especially for younger kids, is it puts them in a situation where, and and, and let me say, when I say especially for younger kids, the, the passage, Exodus 1 passage has blown my mind over the last two weeks. To see the sovereign power of God to preserve a nation. In fact, to multiply and grow that nation in the midst of persecution. That's where we want to take the conversation tonight. So you've got to draw them in. Dad, draw them in by saying, this man made them become slaves. Then he tried to kill all the little boys. He tried to get the doctors, the midwives, the labor and delivery midwives to kill the baby boys. And then when that didn't work, he tried to get all the people to kill the baby boys. And he tried to get them to throw them in the river. Throw them in the river. How would that make you feel? And bring the weight of desperation from that story into the story. And then give them the but God. Because three times in the passage, and you look for it, Dad, three times in the passage, it says that God multiplied the people. He multiplied the people. Multiplied them numerically, multiplied them in strength because God was bringing about his sovereign plan. Okay, so let's set that up. So tonight as a family, let's discuss that. Let's talk about that because that's where we're going tomorrow. Okay, excited to have you guys. Tomorrow is going to be um, an awesome time of activity together. Okay, so so tonight we're going to go into a time of devotion and, and family worship tomorrow morning. We'll go in time of devotion and family worship, but tonight afterwards, it's just free time. The prayer chapel will be open as a family. You may want to go up there, the SWO underground. It's an amazing experience as a family to go in there together, spend time together. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing experience. Okay. Um, and if you're not familiar with what that is, ask one of the staff and they'll give you kind of some details on what, what that entails. And then Afterwards, after family devotions tonight, just free time. We'll have a fire going, snack shack will be open. And we want you to do something that American families have gotten horrible at doing. Just hang out. Just chill. I love being home. I'm gone a lot, and I love being home. And our and I, and I'm, I'm, some of you are where I am. I'm, I'm at a place where my kids are coming in their teen years. And so we're just we're able to chill and hang out and have fairly good conversation. That's like, you know, we can, we, where you can go to some depth, not just around the, the study and talk of scripture, but just life, you know, just, just do life and share life and talk. And so tomorrow we're going to try to create opportunity for shared experiences. So after lunch tomorrow, the whole afternoon, we're going to have water slide will be open. We'll have some, some activities open here at the creek is a favorite place for little ones to hang out. In fact, it's a favorite place for me to hang out. I enjoy hanging out in the creek. And so we have water slide open, the pool and the water slide will be open, playing the creek. But we want you to just play tomorrow. Dad, please, just put, put the phone away. Mom, 
Facebook will be there. God forbid, but it will on Monday when you get home. It'll be there. Just tomorrow, airplane mode. Every phone has it that was made after about 2006. Airplane mode. We just cut it off and just, just hang out. Just spend time together. Spend time together and enjoy your family. I know that's, I know that's the, a lot of you, that's the goal. That's why you're here to begin with. But just let me remind you and encourage you. It's like being reminded and encouraged. Eat the ice cream and cake at the birthday party. Oh, really? You want me to do that? Yeah. yeah. Play, enjoy shared experiences tomorrow. Hang out together and enjoy it. Do it tonight. I want you to, so we're going to have teaching sessions. If you want some of you want to bring your little kids in here, that's totally cool. You know, we've got opportunity for them to be under solid teaching, but uh, we invite them in here. If you want them to be in here, that's cool. That's, that's your prerogative. Uh, they will be, uh, what they're being taught down there in those sessions tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening will mirror what we're being, what, where we're going here. So for family discussion, that'll be, that'll be uh, helpful. Okay. So I will close us in prayer and in, um, find your, find your kids, go get them if they're down there. And, uh, and y'all just spend some time together this evening and family devotions, read the, listen, dad, if you're not confident with this, read Exodus one, there are going to be three places where it says they multiplied and grew. Just pause right there and say, man, God grew this nation of people. Wow. God grew the nation of people get through the chapter, read it together, pray as a family. If you want to discuss it, that'd be awesome. But, but family devotions and then family enjoyment, okay? Playtime, all right? So I'll pray. God, pray that this weekend we would receive your favor and it would be an awesome time where uh, we grow closer together as families, but cr- closer together by the power of the gospel and, uh, and that we grow in our love for the gospel. I pray that uh, you would bring, Lord, if there are relationships that this weekend are in need of reconciliation, there, there is broken fellowship or, or disappointment and unmet expectations. God, I pray that we would all press into Christ to find our identity in you. Our love for one another would be rooted in our love for you, which is rooted in your love for us because we love you because you first loved us. And we love our husbands and wives and kids because you first loved us. And if we love them first and everything's upside down, it looks like Eden at the fall. I pray that we would guard against that inversion. We would love you and have no other gods before you, including our spouses and kids, and jobs, and families. Pray your blessing on this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.